I play every character like they've just died and I'm telling their life story. to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. So, tell me what I want. Welcome to They Coined It. You know, I love that cutaway when Pete Campbell is looking at the nudie magazines when he has to um, <laughs> find out if he's viable. And Ro the cuts right to Roger doing the paddle ball spanking noise. You ever notice that yes, in this episode? Yes, yes, yes. It's yes, quite, yes, I have noticed quite a clever that. little sophomoric, uh, childish sight gag. But, but it lands. Boy, does it land. It's good. <laughs> How many masturbation episodes have we had? It lands so and finishes. Betty. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We, if you will. We've had Betty in the washing machine and we've had uh, Peggy and the relaxicizer. That's right. Or whatever that's, the fuck that's, that's called. That's two out of, of three out of 15 episodes. So, a full 20% of this series so far <laughs> deals. Which I guess has life in life. That's right. That's probably an, an accurate uh, statistic ratio, uh, if you will. Oh, well, I mean, speak for yourself. But um, the, yeah, the onanistic qualities of this series are not to be, are not to be left out. We what will, is that word? Onanism, meaning like wasting your seed. That's the, the real, ah. the full thing. So that's been interpreted as masturbation. It's what's prohibited by the Bible. None of this is making the cut. <laughs> I, the I don't know, man. But I got, but the, the, the part about the spanking and the, the cut is what I was really Melinda McGraw. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't she awesome? I mean, she was like beyond awesome. She was beyond awesome. She was so, and you'll hear it. And we'll get right to it. She was so enthusiastic to talk about something 12 years ago, 15 years, 14 years, whatever it is <laughs> right. they filmed. Such is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she just jumped right in. She was able to really articulate the process of her creative process from start to yeah. finish, the character, yeah. what she put into it that was her homework beforehand, what she brought to it, what she was given, how she played off um, John Hamm. And I mean, it was unbelievable. If you've ever heard an interview with, you know, Robert De Niro, who can't describe any you know, the actor of our generation, can't tell you anything. He'll barely acknowledge that he's an actor. He's one of the dullest interviews. <laughs> a man uh, cannot really describe is. the creative process. But anyway, Melinda McGraw is the, the anti-Robert De Niro when it comes to <laughs> describing the process and sharing with fans how you um, how you create a character from scratch. I mean, from friggin' scratch. And she also talks about, and we're going to get right to it, but but one of the things I was really touched by was how Bobby Barrett was not well regarded by fans and how that <laughs> bummed her out because she loved Bobby. So let's get to it. <laughs> Here is Dan and my interview with Melinda McGraw. Linda McGraw. Yes. <laughs> so excited. We're here with the one and only Melinda McGraw, who played, of course, Bobby Barrett on season two of Mad Men. Unbelievable. <laughs> so first, can we just say uh, we're recording this on a date well in advance of when this is posting. So it's November 8th, which is the Sunday after the election. Melinda, can you talk about your 
family's activism a little bit? Oh, you're so nice to ask. Well, I actually, my husband and I, who, who met in Los Angeles, but we both come from, you know, somewhat political backgrounds, he more than I, but um, I was born overseas because my father worked uh, for AID. Born in Cyprus, spent most of my young adulthood, a young adulthood, young life in what is now Bangladesh. Um, so, so we were always aware of civics, of it, very important. And uh, my parents were from Texas, so they were um, Democrats who left Texas to move to New England, and we were the only Democrats in our in the town, actually in Massachusetts, which was a more rural town. So we were always progressive. So I learned very early to speak up for uh, my beliefs, which were more liberal. And then um, I became um, involved in politics in, in high school and start, I was, <laughs> I'm 57. So I was out there working for John Anderson um, at the time, who was uh, the wow. third party candidate against Reagan, who was an, on an anti-nuke platform and I demonstrated and stuff. So I always stayed political. Then I moved to England where I became even more um, concerned about some imperialist things and things that I didn't like about the way our politics were run. And my husband, in the meantime, who is seven and a half, almost eight years younger, was born in D.C. to a family originally from Oklahoma, also Democrats. His father actually worked for um, Johnson. He was uh, one of his uh, White House counsel during the Johnson administration. So he grew up in D.C. with the experience of having Republicans and Democrats over, you know, they go to work, they argue, they come home, they're great friends. And mm -hmm. he was born in a very bipartisan um area but he it was kind of always in the background of our lives when you know obviously i worked for obama campaigns clinton campaigns a little more than he did but when 2016 happened and i think he it, sh it surprised him it shook me surprised him and he the next day just got up and we went to a meeting of progressives and he found the organization that made the most sense to him which was some left which is interested in um, you know, reaching out to those swing districts that can make a difference in trying to communicate, you know, and, and bring people together. He became very involved in um, grassroots activism and, um, and then went on staff at Swing Left. And now he has a podcast too called How We Win. Um, and he is the director of uh, volunteer training at Swing Left. So he has been working so hard um, and I have been more you know, supporting. <laughs> well, thank you and thank him for the terrific work. I mean, my goodness. So, but it has been um, a beautiful experience, a very moving experience um, to see so many people get involved in our process that were not involved before. What can you tell us about how you built Bobby Bear? What were you given? What, what did Matt Weiner, you know, kind of prepare you with? And what did you... Um, bring to it after that. She's striking me really differently this time, and I have thoughts, but we want yours for sure first. Well, first I have to tell you the most extraordinary irony is that um, right now I'm in Vancouver and I'm doing a guest arc, which is kind of one of my thing, on the remake of Charmed. And the woman that I'm going to spend most of the episode with is played by none other than Peyton List. Ah. Who is the new girl introduced in Jane the episode Siegel. of New Girl, who is quarantining quarantining down the hall from me in her own quarantine. <laughs> That's awesome. We will be reunited, I think, on Monday. And oh, uh, so I so cannot funny. wait because I haven't spoken to her since we've sent, you know, a few messages back and forth. So I think that that's kind of beautiful. Um, that is. Love it. So the good, the, the great news about my audition for Mad Men is I had heard about the show, but thank God I had never seen it. 
because if I had seen it, I would have wanted it so badly. I probably would have <laughs> gotten in my head. Um, so I went in and Matt Weiner uh, was a friend of mine already from having worked on a sitcom called Living in Captivity that was a Diane English sitcom um, that was ahead of its time where we did half of it taped and half of it in front of an audience where there was swearing that was bleeped out. It was on <laughs> Fox actually. Um, and he was one of the writers. So it was a comedy. So I met him then. So I hadn't seen him in a while, probably, I don't know, it'd been eight years or something. So I was so happy to see him. And um, we were only given, we were given a scene that with no other scenes. And because I'd never seen it, I didn't know who Don was. And I, I'm not someone who does a lot of research about who's playing what or what, you know, I, I, what I, wa I want to read the synopsis of the show and understand the world, depending on the audition. But I read it and I thought I understood it and I didn't know if he was a main character, or I didn't. So it was the scene where we first met and talked about my husband, Jimmy. And then I think we read, we read another scene from another show. So um, I went in and I did it. And my, what I gleaned from her, and there was not a lot of information, was mostly intuitive, but I just, it was clear that this was a self-made person and there was something about her that was, you know, with every character, I all, my first question always, which pathology do they have and how much? Because all of us have our own pathology. <laughs> it's great. What you level is it? You would be writing about this person if she wasn't pathological. And so there was a lot I didn't know, but I knew in the dynamic of this, whatever this exchange was, that there was dangerous, pow a power thing that they both enjoyed. And I knew that. And that's so, mm. so I played it, it, I made my choices from that. So mm. what kind of woman in that time does that? A woman who lives in an oppressive society, who's going to make it work for her and not let it oppress her. So that was the only choice I made. As time went on, at once I got the script, I'm sure you guys have heard about the casting process that, well, I don't know. In the beginning, there was no stunt casting. There were no famous people. Right. None. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I didn't know at the time, after I was in the in the first tranche, I've been hearing the word tranche this week. <laughs> a lot, the right. tranche of ballots. <laughs> Different I tranche, was in the first yeah. tranche of contenders. Um, apparently, like the day after I left, they brought in a New York Times reporter to sit in on all of the auditions, and the person who ended up playing my husband was in was in some of those auditions and knew who was there. There ended up being an article about that. And they were, they were anonymous about who the actresses were. And in that article, he kept talking about this other actress. And then another actress, who I still don't know who it is, who was, who was beautiful, and then me. And deciding <laughs> between, Christ. and I, I really think that she's so beautiful, she's so right for it, but this other girl, I don't want it to look like TV. So, um, <laughs> so when I read that much later, I was a little hurt, but you know, I'll take it. Um, but he would not, he never ended up saying who got the role. And it was this big article. And I was so upset. I was like, Hey, some PR for me. He's like, this whole thing is, I don't want anyone to know. And he, everything we were sworn to secrecy. And right. I'm sure you guys have heard at the first table read, we got a big speech about not one word could leak about how essential it was. And that was his Sopranos background. You know, you have no idea what we went through as a blog. <laughs> Just, <laughs> You're right I have no doubt because he, he's, I mean, it's a fortress, a fortress. 
So after my audition, I was on hold. I didn't know, my agents didn't even tell me um, that I was on hold. After about 11 days, I got a call and said, I got the part. I said, what are you talking about? I hadn't, because I audition and I forget about it. I've been doing this too long. I don't think about things. Uh, life is too short. And I, I do every audition, like this is my chance to have the part. And then I forget it. If I really blew it, I might think about it. And if I just love everyone, I might be like, you know, this, but I don't, I try not to go down that road of, you know, so when I got the call, I was absolutely floored. And they said, yeah, well, you, you've been on hold for 10 days and now it's between you and one other person we're going to know by the end of the day. And I was thrilled. Meanwhile, still hadn't watched it. Once I got the role and I turned it on, <laughs> I was on the floor. By the way, the same thing happened to me when I got the Dark Knight. I had never seen Batman begin. So when I got the Dark Knight to play Harry Oldman's wife in that, and I was very excited about that. Then I watched the, the Batman Begins and I was so excited. So I tried to leave it. Cause I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to drive myself crazy. You know, as I got the script and I saw, I understood this dynamic with Jimmy, this comedian, I wrote a backstory, which I do with my character. So what I decided without talking to, to Matt was that she had been, you know, maybe an exotic dancer or a, a waitress dancer in nightclubs in Jersey actually. Um, and met Jimmy on that circuit. She was from a working class, pretty hard scrabble background you know, not a great home life, left left home at 16 kind of thing. Ended up hitching her wagon to him and educating herself in the ways of business and um, using whatever means necessary to um, to make that happen. So it wasn't, you know, th so that was just a story that I made yeah. to Brilliant. for myself. Um, and I did later confirm that he had some of those exact stories in mind. So I felt pretty good about that, you know, mm. that they were, she was completely self-made what I didn't understand until he helped me, and it was in this episode, when it was in car crash, and we were driving out to the lake after we had met it at um, Sardis. Sardis, and we were we were drinking. He said, "By the way, that that episode I have to say was directed by Julie Getzinger. It was her first Jennifer. episode at directorial. It was her debut. She's a brilliant director, but she was this. She had been the script supervisor." So she right. she knew all the characters she and she just did a great job. But he would come down to the floor sometimes, as I'm sure you guys know, and was involved. But he just leaned into me. I said, I, I just have a little bump with this line about um, why can't we just be happy? And he said, and he was, you know, he was kind of irritated, well, adamant about that, and 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 you know, activated. And he said, because life is deadening. And she doesn't want to feel dead. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I get it. I mean, that it was just so well put. The life is deadening. And I was like, okay, yep. Now that completes my my own war character work. Just hearing those words, life is deadening. I was like, now I understand it. Why is it so hard to just enjoy things? God, I feel so good. I, from the beginning with her hard scrabble, I had built in the abuse that she had been abused and had figured out a way to fight back and turn the narrative and become a, become a killer. Um, and so her, her need for that adrenaline rush to be on the edge made her feel alive. And like a lot of people with ADD or a lot of people who are um, self-destructive or 
addicts, there is this need, this, this dead feeling that they've got to go to extremes to feel alive at all or why. And, and that I was like, though that was inarticulated in what I was doing with her, him articulating that made it very clear for me. She is, she is just trying to hang on to the exuberance and moment to moment. And that's why she's like, you know, it's America, pick, pick a freaking job, man. This is, this is it. It's up to you. So that instruction kind of fed your backstory, even though they weren't connected together, you were able to immediately absorb that instruction and be like, oh, it's part of what I've already built of this person. Yeah. It just gives it a it little was bit the more final... texture. Yeah, it was really, it was like the, the, a bunch of, I mean, I had like, I had disparate ideas. It was a pretty, you know, but it was the Polaroid coming into focus that that that, that was one of, really her, one of her organizing principles, not just... And it's, you know, that she was actually doing it for this. If, and when you have as an actor, one core thing, like, but if, you, if, if, if I had come up with that myself, or if he had said at the, at the beginning, before I was at that point with my character development, it wouldn't have, I don't, it was just the perfect moment that I, so that I took that in because I, I had a lot of help too from um, Leslie. And I mean, it, it, in the first episode and in, and, and from John, I mean, uh, John, you know, He's a, such an incredible, generous, quintessential leading man because he took care of everyone. The first time we met was was our first kiss. That's our first scene together mm. when we're in the car and it gets <laughs> filthy. Our first scene and he just said to me, look, you can't offend me. I, I understand you're married. I'm in a relationship. Nothing you do is gonna offend me. You're safe with me, please feel free, you know? And when an actor says that, and you know they mean it, it gives you the freedom. And it's scary to play. Um, and she, I don't see. I don't think she's as aggressive as everyone called her. I think that's a lot of societal projection bullshit. But um, I still, obviously, still, she was setting it up so that that could happen, and that he would welcome it. You know. But I don't look at it like he was really a good boy, and she attacked him, which is how it came across. <laughs> Well, because there's his story playing into it that starts the season prior of him being so bad. And now he looks at the first couple episodes of the season, he appeared to be sort of like placid. But he's so an addict. Was... He's an addict himself. They well, are we're learning this. Yeah, we, this we, we're learning we're still, this. We're still learning it. This is part of that education of the audience, but it all right. comes together, you know. And I, I always so saw her, I always saw her as a as a really good person, a really great person, actually. And I saw her as a feminist, even though she was deeply flawed and immoral. I was shocked in the at the response to this character. Yeah. I was absolutely shocked and hurt I, for her. And I was hurt. like, what the, how are you letting him off the hook and blaming her? I, it was unbelievable to me. It was like, what am I, Hillary Clinton here? It was. <laughs> It was uh, so stunning to me, but of course that's how all actors, all good actors approach their work. You, you play the characters a whole person that you love and that you advocate for. I play every character like they've just died and I'm telling their life story and I owe everything to them. That is my, my job is to the character. Obviously I'm not gonna do anything that the creators don't agree with. I mean, it's a collaboration, but I am there to fight for the character's point of view. And when they're wrong, wrong, we're all wrong a lot of the time. And she was trying to get her needs met. And it, to him, and John and I have talked about it, she was trying to get a financial deal done. 
That is not how I played it. And that is not how I saw it. It was emotional and power, power for emotion, which is what has been going on in our politics. All of it is emotional. The strategy, even the greediness is emotional. It's a fear of lack and a fear of being invisible and half dead and not noticed. So she wow. was not going to live her life not noticed. So you don't sit in a, in, in a car with Don Draper in the rain. She doesn't and not make herself available to that level of excitement. So she and Jimmy had an arrangement that was not completely above board, but deep down she knew that he knew. I know people who have unspoken, like we, we don't talk about what we don't talk about, but there's, you know, I also know polyamorous people which is a different, yes. which is a conversation. But I know people who are like, yeah, there's things that we both know that we're not talking about. And it's sort of an arrangement. But I picked up when, when watching this episode again, um, a certain codependency between Jimmy and Bobby. Oh, oh, absolutely, of course. He ran off because uh, Buddy Hackett said such and such, and, uh, all these great little tidbits. And, you're, and then she has to kind of talk him down. And even when you're in Peggy's apartment, you have that call with them like, oh, don't worry about it. They and it's this constant, like, I need you to need me and I need to be needed and all this kind of back and forth. And I'm like, okay, they've been doing this for years. This is, you, this, this relationship, it kind of doesn't she change. will never leave him. They will never not be together. This is, she is the only one that can take care of him. And he's deeply afraid of losing her, but he cannot function without her. He knows it. And, th you know, I, their next act, I'm sure, is maybe they're finally going to move to the West Coast to Vegas and get into television. I mean, this is a long-term uh, plan for them, a long-term plan. And so she does try to protect him. And, um, and yeah, oh, absolutely. They have a very, a very healthy for them and very sick, objectively, codependence. Right? It's, it's, it's really something to watch. So um, I am fascinated with um, what you were saying about aggressive part. It's framed within the fact that Don physically attacked you in the restaurant to get his way for Jimmy's apology. So while it's true, you're, you're aggressive and you pick your spots to be aggressive, you respond to aggression in a way that's oh, yeah. very sort of, you know, um, it's in, in a two-way fashion. Um, so I'm interested in how you saw that because that was another controversial element of the relationship that got a lot of, a lot of attention. Well, sure. And of course, you know, I think people are worried it's glamorizing abuse and a lot of people feel very strongly about that and they have every right to feel strongly about that. Um, but I, but I also think <laughs> with another character, she could have slapped him and called the police. She could have never seen him again, you know, been intimidated, did what she did and left it. it I, I, people, I, I know this is very difficult to square psychologically, but both things are true. He abused her and she enjoyed it. She hated it and she welcomed it because she, that is her um, MO. She's not a healthy person, she, but she's not a despicable person. She's an unhealthy person and she was not a victim. And I know that that's a controversial thing to say, but the reason that I made that decision and it was clear to me in the writing is that this was, a, this was something that they started from the beginning in his car. Um, and that, yes, it shook, it did shake her. And so she was, she was a, let me put, put it differently. She was a victim and she decided not to remain one. I think the, the, the danger of that is it perpetuates um, a rape myth that women enjoy somehow to be uh, 
raped and people, women enjoy being, you know, taken over and all this stuff. So yes, is there an element of truth to that? Yes. And is that maybe part of what was written in there that is um, an unhealthy point of view? Yes. And so that's important to look at that and see that. But as a character, I, all I can do as an actor is, I mean, I can take a job or I can reject a job. And when you have a job, and if I was unable to do that, and I felt that I could not do that, I would have gone to him and said, I just can't do that. What else can we do? And I, Melinda McGraw as an actress, made the decision that that character would take that on, do what he said, and continue pursuing this relationship because that's how wounded and damaged and the peace she has made with her own pathology is. And that it was a power move. It was a power struggle. Their entire relationship was about power. In my opinion, it was about personal power, not about business power. Now, when you talk to John Hamm, she thinks he, his perspective was that everything Bobby did was for business power, at least at the time when we spoke about it, he may have ch changed his, but the way I played it was it was about personal power. And it is not something, it is not a position she had not been in before. Well, there's, there's, Two, two elements to that. First is, <clears throat> I, I always felt that as a character, as, as shocking as the moment was and the act was, and still is, you know, even seeing it now, years later, was that Don Draper, the character, would not have done that if he didn't know it was going to have the effect that it did. He wasn't rolling the dice. He, he knew Bobby. Well, also, they had already, they had already been intimate in his car. Sure. Yeah, he, 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 but I don't think he thought he was taking a chance. He was doing that because he knew it was the thing that would work when this thing was starting to go off the rails. I need to get him to apologize. He's got two minutes before, before this thing all falls apart. This is my, but I have to do what I know is going to work. <laughs> I guess he thought, you know, she's, it's the only way he's going to get her attention. Um, and, but it, it was, I mean, yes, he totally bullied her. It was completely wrong. The, but the reason it silenced her is in the way I chose for myself was not maybe what the thing that other people think, which is that it bullied her. The choice I made was that she enjoyed it. And I think that that's why it's so controversial. I made the choice that this character thought, oh, this is more, this is um, foreplay. Right. This is all part of it. Right. And not in a, and I don't mean in a sexual way. I know what you're saying. I, 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 don't, I don't mean that women want that or that that's okay. I, they had a very sick relationship. And she was, they, he's a very, he has a lot of interesting pathology and she had as many. And so it was a moment where the tigers were out of the cage and at each other's throats. And he won that round. We, we need to talk about how this, how this winds up in, in, in Peggy's apartment, right? Because- you and Peggy have this little sparring boxing match going on while you're convalescing. But, because I want, I want you to hear the both sides of the thinking, because it goes back to what you just said, that you think she's a really good character. On this watching the most, and especially I'm watching it knowing I'm going to be talking to you, um, but also a lot of time has gone by and a lot of my thinking has changed about everything. And I just think you're, you're just real straight. You're just asking. Every time you ask Peggy, it can feel to the audience like a provocation, like a like some kind of dig, some kind of again boxing. Well, more power more play. aggressive behavior. Yeah. What what is with you and Don? I don't care. I don't care. I'm the woman who doesn't care. Just tell me. Are you in love with him? Are you fucking him? Are you what? 
So, so, so yes. Yeah, so, so these, these are these are these are what fans are thinking as this kind of circling each other is going on. You're asking questions. She kind of parries. It gets a little sharp, you know. At one point, like I've answered your question, you know, I'm taking care of you. That's all I'm doing. At some point, you know, it gets sharper and sharper, and then you kind of go in for the kill. In fact, yeah, I don't see it as a kill. The way your body moves in one in one in one in one of the shots, it looks like you're like gearing up. And you give her this amazing wisdom, how to be a woman and don't try to be a man. And it, so I'm just curious how that um, evolution of the time in Peggy's apartment, what, how, you, how you viewed that for your character. Well, what's so great is we could do it. We could shoot it in, in order because we're in one beautiful set that to me looked like a, a play. It was like doing a play and Elizabeth Moss. I mean, oh my God, I don't know even where to begin with working with her and how it is um, just like swimming. I, I don't know how else to say it really, except that there's no resistance. Let me put it that way. Um, Robin Veith, who also was the writer on this, she was also on set and was Love extremely her. helpful. And she's brilliant. Um, and she, I had a few questions. I was like, so when I'm at, you know, I, I did go up to her and I said, so when I'm asking her about, you know, when she says I'm not your competition, are, I'm, I was kind of, get, I was trying to without really, because I don't like to, sometimes be too clear because I want to dis us to discover when you have a two-hander, especially in long scenes like this. Um, and she said, you just think it's cute that she thinks that you would think that. And I said, okay, that's all you have to say. That's all you have to say. I, I chose to play it that Bobby's vulnerability in this situation, I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but my favorite scene in the whole episode is when I'm in the back of the car and I'm passed out and I wake up and then I pass out again. Um, <laughs> because I... <laughs> I think that, that 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 scene is so, I mean, here she is. And she could have been my character young if I hadn't gone the other exotic dancer route, maybe. Um, except, you know, she's good and she's doing it right. But she's taking charge. Don is a mess without these women taking care of him. And so here he is stuck between these two women. And I'm now a nuisance, even though on one level, he needs me, he needs this, right? So I tried to play her like, okay, vulnerable. I'm in this situation with someone I've got to hide out from my husband. I don't want to hurt him. I am with this girl that I don't know, but he trusts her. I'm, I have to trust her. I'm a freaking prisoner. I would like to have a rapport. She has no interest. <laughs> in like, really? You know, you know, I want to talk about Marilyn and the magazines or whatever. So when it gets down to it, I mean, but I'm, I have these conversations in front of her with my husband. I lie to him. I, I, I talk to Don. He's like, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, my heart. You know what? I mean, I think she's affected. I think that she's part of her falling. Like, how can I make this keep going? Oh my God, is this the last time? So it's covering her ass, but it's also, there's something going on that's alive and vulnerable. I decided to play it just as this is a girl doing this guy a favor and she's going to be able to get something back. So I owe her. So here's how I'm going to pay her back. I'm going to give her a little advice about, you know, you're kind of in the driver's seat. And like literally she was in the driver's seat. And then the way they, they, they wrote it, you know, Matt and Robin wrote it, is that I gently start giving her. So when I say, are you sleeping with them? And she says, I'm not your competition. And I can, <laughs> that's, I say, that's sweet. You're so young and beautiful. You know, you're so young and pure. You're so young and, and innocent that you would think that I, that's what I meant. Was what I meant was we're talking about power. You have to start living the life of the person you want to be. Is that what you did? 
You're never gonna get that corner office until you start treating Don as an equal. And no one will tell you this, but you can't be a man. Don't even try. Be a woman. Powerful business when done correctly. Do you understand what I'm saying, dear? I think so. Those subtleties, yeah, maybe on a second, third viewing, and maybe in time, some of that will change. I have been starting to get more mail uh, about this character. Um, really? Yes. So I do think maybe things are shifting as people watch it. and they. You mean as people are watching it, more like getting back yeah, to that, it? Yeah, that that because I was, I really was, in fact, even by reviewers, like, why is she, why did they pick someone so unattractive? Why Jesus do they not have chemistry? I mean, no, it's fascinating. I mean... Again, I know, and I don't. I don't think they're talking aesthetically, primarily, though. Of course, ouch, whatever. But I think that it made people very uncomfortable, and that's great. I love that. That yeah. is great. Yeah. That is what you want as an actor to get those kind of roles. And I think for my career, it was one of, you know, really probably the most defining role I've ever had in that way. Not in terms of fan stuff. I mean, it's X Files, really, and Dark Knight, a lot of X Files still. But, but for me as an artist, for me as an actor out there in, in, in what, what people know I can do or whatever. And for me, knowing what I can do, it was the kind of role you get to play on stage, but you don't often, as a woman, a middle-aged woman, most of my roles as a middle-aged woman, I'm killed. I'm killed. That's what, they, no, they don't know what to do with us. Um, <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> so, you know, so to play a complicated, sexual, powerful, you know, um, flawed um, and sometimes horrifying woman um, is that's all an actor wants. That's what we want. We want, and we don't just want to play it. We want to see it. We want to see it. That's right. And I think that, you know, that, that a lot of the pro age movement and stuff like that is going to be bearing this out that, you know, <laughs> women are much more complicated than we've been told we are allowed to be. What a brilliant performance by Patrick Fleshler. I mean, well, just his open the opening scene when he's when he's uh, doing the 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 commercial for yes. us, and he's directing the cameras, and he and I'm like, this guy's like Jerry Lewis, yeah, right? Like he's he's that like kind of goofy on camera, you know, big broad comedian guy, but he's got like he he knows everything that's going on. He knows everybody's role and what everybody should be doing. Could probably do it better than most of them anyway. So it, he's, he can whip everyone into shit. And I, I saw that kind of like, that's an amazing kind of quality that either he gave them individually because of what he brought to it or how it was, how it was presented to him. But Patrick's performances were, just, they're just astounding. And we, we talk all the time on the, sh on the podcast about someone like Don is Betty too, constantly admired by people who don't know them. They're constantly admired by people for their looks, how they dress, and they're loved for it, and it changes how they view the world. And in a way, Bobby and and Jimmy Barrett are the the other side of that coin of saying, "Look at that, that bullshit." They have to, you know, we have to work for it. They get, you know, and the and the, yeah. the privilege, the right, and <laughs> and despise it, what it's like to despise that privilege. But of course, he. But of course, the truth is, he he. It wasn't privilege. He also stole an identity. You know, <laughs> He's a completely self-made. Yeah. Man, and, and the, the one thing about, I always saw Bobby Barrett 
as the female version of Don Draper. Right? Yes. Oh, yes. The only difference is that she was honest with herself about it and she's actually healthier. Yes. Um, yes. I always yeah. saw her that way from the, from the time I got the first script, I was like, oh, so he's met her match. And I think part of the response to the Bobby character is that Don Draper was disgusted by her. So the audience is always gonna take the anti, the hero, even if he's a disgusting character in, in a lot of it, and the same ways, gonna take his side. He was disgusted by her because he saw himself. When he really got disgusted by Bobby was, was when it was through Rachel's eyes. The woman, the love of his life walks by, married, and sees him at the exact thing she left him over. Right. Yeah, she she looks at Bobby and goes, "Oh, you guys are sleeping together. I get it. We're done. We're done here." <laughs> so it's all about the, his own suddenly being exposed and yes. seen as himself, which he which he puts flatly only on you, right? Because that's what Don does best is not is deflect responsibility. And look at how in the car afterwards, when we're drunk, and I say I feel so good, and he says I don't feel a thing which is exactly comes back to Weiner's note, Weiner's note to me that life is deadening, that, you know, I don't feel a thing. He has got to numb himself from that feeling of shame. That is what his life has been running from this shame. That's what it's all about. Right. And if it was a four, if it was a four that got him to the restaurant, it was a 12 by time he, you know, saw Rachel that took him over right. the edge. And that, and that, but the the difference where they parted is that she wanted to feel more alive. Well, he did too. He was pushing himself to the edge till he got to that point, like like in you know had a cat on a hot tin roof where Brick is drinking and he says, "I'm waiting for that switch to happen." He was waiting for the switch to happen um, with the booze, and then it did, so that he could be numb and not be in that shame anymore. And she was waiting for the switch to happen. Oh, I can smell the ocean. Oh my God, I feel so good. That's what she wanted. So they both got what they wanted and had a car wreck. <laughs> but it's car. more on the surface with her is what is really what you're like. She's expressive about it. I can, like you say, I, she's she's listing all these things that are sensory and that are taking her away. And he and he's <laughs> kind of like just behind this wall. He's never getting there. Right. Oh, I mean, he has so much work to do. <laughs> he has so much work to do on himself. Five yeah, more seasons. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, I, I mean, it's a really, I think that that car scene is a very um, beautifully written character piece and, and it may be an underrated also part of that episode because that the second car scene when they're about to crash. I just, and it's a very simple and it's very short. And of course, people picked up on, oh my God, she's drinking out of a bottle that's so lowbrow or whatever. What's really going on is these two in shame people trying to escape that and feel less alive and more alive. And it's it's just a really so well-written, such a well-written so interesting. episode. And also, you know, you like you said, you're getting you're getting new responses to it. We picked up on during you know the early part of the pandemic everybody was finally either getting back to Mad Men or getting to Mad Men um and then Netflix then it left Netflix there was a whole thing we panicked it's all good now but um but yeah people started watching it again you know I I do comedy and drama I, I do all sorts of different things I'm not I choose I would prefer to do things with good writing but to get projects with that level of writing is very, very rare. Very rare indeed. It's like, it is like doing a play by one of the great playwrights. Even most plays aren't that good. So um, 
the, you know, saying, speaking that dialogue was the sexiest thing about playing Bobby Barrett. Everyone, right? It was the, I mean, it was absolutely an amazing honor and gift to be able to to jump into such, I mean, look at this, we're having a co-podcast about this character. I mean, you know, it's, you can't do that with most characters, you know? You mentioned it, but I'm interested to, to, to what degree you can get a little bit of a barometer, right? So, so you're seeing just an uptick in terms of interest. Is it coming back around or was it always a certain level of I just think people, you know, when people post comments or fan things, there's a lot of, she was my favorite, uh, you know, they used to be like, she's so disgusting. How could, why did they, how could they, even though she was interesting and compelling, people had a lot of judgment about her, her as a character, as a woman, you know? Um, and it was, so it was always this, wow, you're so great in this. She's so despicable. And I was just scratching my head. And I was just Bobby like, also comes after Rachel because everybody goes crazy for Rachel. So that it, whoever was going to come next was going to get it. Well, of course, Rachel, of course, that was a, that was, he was, he should have left his wife and married her, obviously. Um, and so, but they, again, it, that's his fault. You that's his fault. Together, yes. it's, not it's not Bobby's fault. fault. And, and I think that it, it, I think some of it is people are coming to that because they're watching it a second time. And so now that you understand Don's pathology as deep psychs, you know, psych, psychopathology split of his identity, his deep original wound, uh, you know, um, and his narcissism are something we're more familiar with. Now they can see, oh my God, you know, Bobby he's Barrett projecting on her. for Don Draper, the right. way she seemed. So he's projecting on her and therefore we as the audience were projecting on her, but look at what she's actually saying. Look at what she's actually doing. And that is Matt Weiner's genius because he never, he really loved this character and respected this character wanted her to always look beautiful, put together, wanted her to look, be dressed perfectly, wanted her to be, you know, um, he would even say if something was a little too aggressive, he's like, you know, uh, you, you know, if it wasn't to me, he would say to a director, she would never do this character would never do that. She's not aggressive. She's not. Um, and I think if you want, I'm only aggressive. Well, I, I think I'll have to watch the whole thing again. It's, it's been years, I must admit, but I tried to only be aggressive in scenes or, that were around business. Right, mm. right. But in personal scenes, I'm not, even when I go to his, his office in the next episode about the TV idea, I'm not aggressive. I'm just like, I have an idea, uh, right, right, you know? Right. Exactly. Um, it's Beside so good. Yourself. And then I slink over and I'm like, look at my, dress you know right. I mean, but but so people think that's aggressive people think seduction is aggressive and i would i would argue that it is not listen thank you again awesome stuff melinda it's so nice to meet you dan so good to see you roberta and congratulations thank you melinda thank you congratulations congratulations to all of us <laughs> yes and to the world the new girl written by robin vyth Directed by Jennifer Getzinger. Original air date was August 24th, 2008. And the episode takes place over May 16th through the 18th, 1962. Robin Veith had been a writing assistant and Jennifer Getzinger had been script coordinator. And I've met them both. I've spoken to them both. And, you know, look at this episode. <laughs> you know? Just... And just Google them both, follow their careers, like ridiculous yeah. how how they've gone on and, and been amazing. But here it is. Like this episode is golden. There's plot, there's dialogue, 
there's twists and turns. There's just, there's just so much. And there's real character development, you know, by the, the characters, and I'm speaking mostly about Peggy, are not who they are at the beginning of the episode, by mm. the end of the episode. They've, there's real development. And there's a real artfulness. I mean, we discussed this with Melinda. It has been uh, well tread that, it, that there, the, the Peggy and Bobby scenes in the apartment feel like a play and they were shot in mm-hmm. sequence because they were shot on the one set that mm. that feeling of feeling like a play there was a that was a that's not a an accident as as yeah. you like to say right like that there was an artful choice about what how those two women would be with each other and how that would be filmed and how that would what that would in be a the tight space with. right the whole thing yeah, exactly and, you know, Bobby didn't, I don't think she, um, she really gave us a step-by-step of that relationship, that little mini relationship with, with Peggy that, you know, Peggy's you reaction. You just called her Bobby. I said Bobby gave us. You oh, did. Okay. That's, <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> uh, Melinda gave us a really amazing step-by-step of that relationship with Peggy, between Poppy and Peggy, around, you know, once they get to her apartment and it's kind of like, you know, it's intercut with other action and they keep coming back. I had this metaphor in my head of this boxing match of these two kind of competitors feeling each other out and so forth. And she was like, no, it's she doesn't see Peggy as a competitor at all. That's right. And That's Peggy, right. and Peggy making the comment of I'm not your competition was almost like, you know, how adorable. And that, you know, again, amazing insight into to the preparation and 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 how these characters thought. Now that said, I still don't think it's mutually exclusive. I don't necessarily mean boxing match as in competitiveness, uh, you know, all, entirely a, a being about competitiveness. I do see it though, though as the rhythm of mm. a sparring match, a rhythm of like landing a blow and stepping away and coming back and coming in for the big the big roundhouse punch, which I think Bobby does at the end. Uh, and you've got Bobby with a black eye. <laughs> so I can, I can give you that. Like visually, I, like that too. Yeah, like totally. I never, I never saw, I never saw it that way, but that's the kind of thing that, that isn't a right or wrong. And maybe they yeah. had that, you know, that's a great, that'd be a wonderful question for, for either of the women, you know, who created the episode. Right. Totally. Um, did, did you have that in mind? But there, it is, you know, you say this to me, a, there she is with a black eye. So, <laughs> you know what? So in a true. robe, something. I don't remember she was in a robe. But yeah, no, there was there was that, and certainly that sparring. I mean, the the verbal back and forth, which I think Bobby as a character appreciates from from Peggy's intellect coming through, even even in the small ways as the junior. Person. And I think Bobby, to to the point, to going back to the point we had made about Melinda's job is to examine the character and not the. And not a subtext like a, there was a thirty-something episode with a literal boxing match, you know, in in the imagination. The actor wouldn't uh, wouldn't be there to approach it as a boxing right. match, right? But yeah. Bobby Barrett herself, whether she means to or not, I mean, she's always negotiating, as she says, and she's always trying to get on top. So whether she's a, whether Bobby Barrett and clearly Melinda didn't even see it, right? If Melinda doesn't even see that Bobby Barrett is approaching everything in life mm-hmm. as a boxing match. She's yeah. always going to throw the first. I mean, yeah. you know, you watch the conversations in the rest of the episode with Don um, from the beginning, from, from it, it's combat. always jab, jab, jab. Yep. Totally. Yeah, you know. for sure. And just the handle. It, it is an approach to life. It's like 
going in through a uh, an open market in in the Middle East somewhere, you know, where everything is, you know, what's the price? What do you got? What do you need? How much do you think it's worth? You know, there is no nothing is set in stone. There is a fluid nature to everything, and that's that's what the handler does, and mm. what what the negotiator does. That's certainly what Bobby does. So that insight from from Melinda was just amazing. Please, I hope if you know, keep this episode. Uh, start as far as i'm concerned uh you can go back and listen listen to what melinda has to say it's just it's so fabulous what i did and what i recommend is go back and watch the episode again because she mm. talks about she talks about the other two scenes in the car like, <laughs> yeah. you know bigger touchstones than i ever fair thought. enough melinda i have not paid enough attention to those scenes and i went back and <laughs> just um there's some you know in this tragedy there's some hilarious visual mm. comedy i mean when right. she finally passes out with her full head tilted <laughs> all the way up to the ceiling like a guppy yeah I, it's just it's some great stuff really yeah and and the immediately before the crash what was the the line that she kept kept coming back to um i just want to feel i i feel so alive mm. and him saying i don't feel anything yeah and her description uh, melinda's description of that you know from from matt saying this is this is the core of everything it's all about getting in touch with feeling something and avoiding feeling anything. And the two of them hurtling down the road mm. <laughs> with a, with Don, you know, half baked, one feeling everything, the other feeling nothing and, and you know, jumping into the void, so to speak. It's, it's really, it's a great metaphor on top of everything else. And if you want to get a little psychological, if you look at those two characters, Don is feeling, I mean, maybe not with the alcohol for let's remove the alcohol for a moment, but in, if you look at him, Don is feeling everything and Bobby is feeling nothing. Bobby is feeling no pain. Her desire to feel, her desire to push it further, her yeah. desire to get punched or drunk or fucked on the beach or yeah. or the wind in her hair or whatever. Right. She's not feeling really any of it. And Don, I mean, to me, the, to me, one of the keys to the episode, and this goes back to our dominoes that we that you and I always talk about, like what? What part of what got Don into that car, and he may have gone anyway. I mean, he did mm -hmm. he did show up at Sardi's, but let's talk about the scene. Let's talk about Rachel Menken. Yeah. That was talk about feeling cameo a, of cameos. Cameo of cameos. Talk about feeling get you know the sucker punch. Mm. I mean, I felt it. The first, right? And, right, and I felt it again. You know, all these years later, she shows up, and I was like, oh, "That's right, there she is. Look at her, all in her pink and her her royal, yeah. you know, and her perfectly nebbishy Jewish husband." Um, <laughs> but but Don, this is this episode is about Don's shame. And one thing I want to say too is we have a guest next week as well. I, I have a conversation with Lisa M. Lilly. She has a Buffy podcast and she does a lot on storytelling and the art of storytelling. She's a fiction writer. So she's looking at Buffy through the structure of storytelling. And I, I'd really wanted to talk to her because, because Mad Men like, how does that even work with mm -hmm. Mad Men? You know, you and I are always like, it defies this and it defies that, but there are structures, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that Lisa and I see is, particularly from the perspective of Peggy, but in, in a few ways, the this episode and next week's episode, Maiden Form, are a little bit of a pair, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a storytelling pair. This pair of episodes, and it starts here with the new girl, is, a, is very much about Don, how Don sees himself. Um, and that that's more expressed in maiden form. Mm -hmm. 
but it mm. starts here with Rachel Mencken looking at him. He's exposed, hundred percent. He is a hundred percent exposed. She, what her line is? He introduces Mrs. Barrett. He's very deliberate with the Mrs. Barrett. That's right. And Rachel isn't buying it for one moment. She's <laughs> like, I've sat in that seat. <laughs> I've sat in that seat. I've been, you know, the client. I'm introduced as the client, right? Yeah. And. It's also for Rachel. If Rachel had one lingering doubt, did I make a mistake? Yeah, right, exactly. That doubt is gone today. Yeah. Right. And her line is, he's all business, isn't he? Yeah. And that withers Don. That's right. And that's the first domino in the destruction of his car and his that's, body. Yeah. That's that, that that's let's get out of here to to Don. Yep. Right. And so that I don't have to feel anything. But the truth is, he's feeling everything. He's yeah. feeling every bit of shame. And Rachel he's, nailed it. And she's the one to nail it. And she's he's the one nailed. to nail it. <laughs> so, exactly. Totally. It's just it's it's wild. And, and you know, and it goes back and forth. And, and Peggy comes in the picture when when she needs to. And I think I wrote on the blog at the time. And I even wrote it again because it, it's so apt. Peggy says, uh, this is fixable. Right. This that's that's uh that's right. Harvey Keitel well, I, in uh, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> it's Winston, right. Winston Wolf. She really does come in as the as the as the cleaner, doesn't she? Yeah. But but in but in fact, so Rachel has said he's all business, isn't he? And then uh that scene in the car with with Peggy now mm -hmm. uh driving them back, right before she says that, is Don saying no one in the office can know about this. It's business. Yeah, mean, meaning even bu business itself is a fluid term. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a fungible noun. <laughs> yes, business means we don't talk about this. <laughs> yeah, business can mean whatever it needs to mean at any given time. So the other story that we cover alongside Bobby and Don and Peggy is the Pete and Trudy getting introduced to technological reproduction. A few, few interesting things there. First was Pete mentions his dad dying to the doctor when they're doing the yes. little solo interview. He says, I try not to think about it. It's been a few months. And that, you know, there's a character with a parent dying. And Betty's a character from last season whose parent died. Three months ago, which is the same now, the same time period. Yeah. Right? yeah and, there it is. and you've got, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it necessarily. I just know that you've got Don and Pete with a similar approach. Put it away. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. If you just don't think about it, you don't have to get upset. And Betty, who can't see you, who bubbles up in every corner of her life and can't quite move past it at all, um, at least at least through last season. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what to make of that. But I do think there's a comparison to be made at some point. That's just interesting to see that Don kind of, excuse me, Pete explicitly saying the same the same sentiment that Don has about that, which, which again, I don't know what to make of it, but I, I find Well, I think what to make of it is uh, manly, manly men have this expectation that you get over something like that, that you get over a loss. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't have the same viewpoint quite that Betty doesn't get, oh, Betty's dealing with a lot and we're still watching Betty deal with a lot. And, and I think we, we can actually touch on Betty in this episode because she's not uninteresting <laughs> her role in this episode. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I, I, I think it had more to do with 
um, the suppression of the ex- the expectation that you do not have a reaction to your mother dying. I mean, we are of the age you've lost both your parents, right? Like I have a very great relationship with my mother and I think about it every day. And I know plenty of people who've lost their parents, you know, my dearest, many of my dearest friends, you don't get over it in three months. You're not done. You don't no. be done. You don't, you know, you see it on Facebook. I, yeah. I, my mom died 28 years ago today. I think about her every day. You know, it's, 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 so I think there's something in that sixties culture. Yeah, very much. Well, again, these people were raised by or themselves experienced world war two. Your buddy dies night next to you. People don't come home. It's, it, 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 you know, and before that was the depression. And before that was no such thing as penicillin. Like, I, the, you know, you yeah, could be, yeah. you could just be gone. This was the way that the world changed in the 20th century was from expecting, not expecting to live past 60 or 63 to, you know, what if I don't live past 60 or 63? Coupled with the cultural mandate that you don't have a fucking reaction. Yeah, that's what envelops everything. In fact, that's what, in, that's what causes the fight with, you know, is, is if you can't get past this, then I don't know what we're, you know, it's like, yeah, it'd be great to have kids, but you know what? It'd be great not to have kids. And Pete's like just getting past it already. He's already accepted not having kids. And, you know, to the extent that, you know, a, a, a woman in her early to mid twenties is going to be more mature than a man in his early to mid twenties <laughs> to be definitely a given walking into the relationship. But Pete doesn't stand, doesn't understand anything Trudy is saying about this whole thing and why she doesn't, doesn't try, to. doesn't try. Doesn't, he's, a, doesn't. he's a caveman, but he is, he is Neanderthal in the way that the culture promoted or accepted or required men to think that way. There was just no room for too much else under Maybe. these circumstances. I, I, I don't give, I, I hear you. It's not to forgive Pete, but he is of his time. So there's just, there's a lot going on there that we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily relate to today. Sure. And he doesn't get a pass from me on that. He, he, she's a human being sitting right there in pain and Not to he had right. plenty of opportunities to notice that he was getting it wrong, that she was experiencing something. Right. And he just kept insisting that he, she be some other way. He has sit none down, of those tools. Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> right. He has um, none of those tools. Yeah. So hashtag fuck Pete Campbell. <laughs> Where I saw a connection with Betty Draper in this in this episode was, and I, uh, to go back to Pete and Trudy, you've got Trudy saying, what is this all for? And that's a theme in the Draper household as well, right? That is a cultural it's theme. It's a theme of the whole show. It's a theme of the whole show, but it's also, it is a very, I think, at least by, by, by today's standards, I think it's a... It's a shallow sellout of a take on what are people for. And I think I was I was looking at Trudy first, so then we'll get I'll get to Betty. Trudy is so intelligent. She could have had any career she wanted had that been an option for her. It's not even anything she considered. Uh, I mean, you just look at her, right? And yeah. she just, it's part of, it's part of what Alison Brie brings to her, to yeah. any character she plays is incredible intelligence, right? right? Yeah. And and strength. And I just love her. So you've got this really bright woman and all she thinks she's for is making a perfect home 
and and being a you know a, a bit of a socialite wife, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just being that person, and that's her whole vision. So sure, without and and I'm not I'm not detr- I don't mean to imply that she doesn't actually want a kid. People people want kids fiercely when they want kids. She's a little young to think she desperately needs it in today's standards, but right. whatever, that's fine. But the point is, that's all she thinks. That's her whole dream. Yeah. And she's a bright, bright, bright person. That's right. Now we go to Betty Draper, who also- Not too dissimilar. You know, yeah. Not too dis- not too dissimilar. Different, differently, Trudy thinks her whole purpose is to be a great wife. Betty thinks her whole purpose is to be- a pretty wife. <laughs> I mean, there's <laughs> Betty. Betty has a different uh, sense of what's what's the, her best feature. Well, be- be- Betty's kind of a more glamorous version of Trudy. I think they both they're both cut from the same cloth. If we're if we're if we're making some kind of comparison between those two characters, Trudy and Betty, I would say Betty grew up to be beautiful and have a more glamorous, I think, approach to it. The, the, the speaking Italian and being the model. I don't think Trudy's that kind of person. She didn't have that background yet. They're Objectives are virtually the same in terms of focus on family and and to the exclusion of all else, no career in mind, even though their intelligence would allow them to do lots of things if they wanted. And what's this all for? To be a homemaker, which wasn't even a thing yet. It was, you know, housewife, but really it is about being a homemaker. We are That's making right. a home. What's this all for? Don has said it, our entire purpose. Betty says it. Yeah. And Betty says it exactly. And then Betty in this episode where Don comes home late from the accident. And there's that whole scene where she's like, why didn't you tell me? And, and all of that. And he's lying and that whole thing. But to me, what, what, what stood out was at the end when now she knows he has high blood pressure and she has removed salt from the meatloaf. Was it meatloaf? Yeah. That, that to me just, I almost wept for that meatloaf. I can't even imagine not salting your meatloaf internally <laughs> pre pre loafing, you know, oh, but, bats. um, <laughs> she is so proud of herself. That's right. She is so proud of herself that she has taken this step like it's going to make <laughs> any difference in Don Draper's life. Who's out there having does. steak tartare and 75 martini and yeah. 75 old fashions, right? right. <laughs> it's just, but she's, she's so, she is looking, I mean, talk about trying to feel something. Yeah. Where does Betty get any fulfillment taking that fucking salt away from Don Draper and doing her job? <laughs> right? And I, I yeah. thought that was interesting. I thought that was really interesting. That is great. How about we take a break and we'll come back and talk about the new girl a little bit more. Like, who is the new girl? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So who is the new girl? Well... It depends on what part of the episode we're talking about because we get a new girl at the office. Peyton List playing Jane Siegel is is the new girl in Don's office. And that's kind of like, that's sort of like the first red herring <laughs> because <laughs> there's, there's multiple new girls here. So that's the one where you go, oh, I get it, the new girl, haha. But we could also look at Bobby Barrett as the new girl, as Rachel walks into the into the room. I think she's the secret new girl. I think so I I agree with you. Jane obviously Jane Jane Siegel is the new girl, right? Like she's the literal new girl in like 
hey, it's the new girl kind of a way. I see Bobby as the new girl in sort of Peggy's eyes and Rachel's eyes. Like, oh, mm. Don's got a new girl. Don's got a new girl. <laughs> <laughs> we need, like a fucking hole in the head. Right. We needed for Don to have a new girl, but there she is. She's trashy and she's obnoxious and she's married to that goofball. And uh, <laughs> and we were hoping Don would not have any more new girls, but here we are. And it's and she's formidable, right? So, but what what? The real sort of like twist upon the twist is after Bobby has a couple days in Peggy's apartment in Brooklyn, we realize that Peggy's the new girl. And that's the that's the the standing ovation that I give it at the end. That, that's where this thing goes from wildly entertaining and fabulous Mad Men episode and all, to just, you know, being out there in, in among the stars because you didn't see it coming. Peggy has been resisting. Bobby and her conversations. She is, every time she inquires, she shuts her down. Every time she she gets in there, she shuts her down. And then finally she, Bobby is like, I am going to give you advice if it kills me. <laughs> That's and when she goes in you, for the kill. She goes in for the kill. And the last thing you think is that Peggy's going to take that advice. From last season, the conversation with Joan. Oh, you yes. think you're being helpful. Oh, That's I right. see. I'm, you know what, Joan, thanks, but just let's leave it there. I'm I'm yeah. fine. Thank you. And yeah, resisting every wise woman who came before her because Peggy thinks that they don't have anything to offer. Peggy thinks she's the I don't want to say new girl because it doesn't quite apply, but the newer model, the evolved version of a young woman in the workforce to Joan. The evolved version of a Bobby Barrett. Oh, is that what you did? You just were straight with people and you look how you, you know, does not think there's anything to offer. So we have no reason to believe that any of this is going to land on Peggy. That's right. And the beautiful twist, the beautiful standing ovation ending is it does. Somehow Bobby Barrett clicked with the young Peggy Olson. So the next day, Peggy has to ask Don for his money because $110 is a lot of money. And Don obviously feels some shame and he feels embarrassed and he gets exposed once again. But in this way, you know, safe in a safe environment with Peggy, who he now shares these secrets with. And Peggy can look Don in the eye and say, thanks, Don. And you just go, holy shit, boy. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, and that's the new girl. That's the third new girl. As we're discussing it, I, I see something I see a similarity to Don last season in the last few episodes, we pointed to that Don absorbs information from uh, several sources that Don, Don, Don probably spun. There was two kind of two aspects to it. One is that Don is sort of a sponge for information and how Don, how Dick Whitman has become Don Draper is to do that. Mm. Right. I'm going to learn from everybody. Everybody is my teacher. Right. He steals the Greek. The yeah. Greek comes from Peggy's Latin, right? Like every and but in those last few episodes, it was it was uh, he took a piece from Rachel. He took a piece from from Peggy when Peggy was broken down after the party and what you know, good people and right. So we saw Don do that, and so now in that little bit of Peggy Don parallel that we are starting to see, and we will continue to see for several seasons for sure for sure there's there is peggy taking and taking advice from a source that she acts as though she will never take advice from that's right she she's she is not dumb to 
you know, my, one of my dearest friends, he always says, you never know who your coaches are and they're everywhere. And I can get advice from a garbage can. You know, maybe, maybe that's what Peggy thinks she did, but she did take that advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we haven't, we haven't mentioned it here, but the other big chunk of news from the standpoint of filling in these holes from last season and here it is Peggy's baby, we find out just what happened. And in a way it's a little bit like, it's a little Occam's razor, right? It's the simplest, the simplest form of, of what could have happened is what happened. Well, the big, the big, the visual reveal, uh, visual reveal. And I want to make this super clear because I know, and Lisa and Lisa in my interview next week, she and I talk about this um, as well. So I won't belabor it, but except <laughs> labor, mm. um, you know what? I will belabor it because it can't be said enough because In this episode, what you see is Peggy's mother and sister, and Anita, her sister, is clearly pregnant. And that is the answer to the mystery, whose child is it that Anita is raising? Is it her own or is it Peggy's? And this answers it. not quite as definitive as we thought, but yeah, sure. Because it turns out, I got it, you got it, and fans for years- they're still asking, but what really happened to Peggy's baby? <laughs> and I think this is an example of two things. One, fans who are diehard fans of a show can still miss what's right fucking in front of them. Mm-hmm. But also, I think Matt. I think Matt was too subtle. I That's think right. Matt because Matt also has expressed the same frustration. Like, wait, I answered it. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I get it, but I think he he needed to hit us over the head apparently a little harder, right. and he didn't. But you guys, listeners. <laughs> coiners, whatever, whatever you are, (laughs) the baby is Anita's that bait that Anita is raising Peggy's baby. She gave it away. That's right. Done. There you go. There's the mystery, but we, but, but we, we we get the bridge (laughs) of how we got from here to there with these flashbacks from, from Peggy. And it's interesting that the the flashbacks are revealed. It's always like, why these flashbacks now? It's not, sometimes it's like obvious and sometimes it's less obvious. Well, this is a different verse as in universe verse mm-hmm. of flashbacks than we've ever seen. We've never, we've never seen kind of real time flashbacks. We've only well, ever since seen we've met, yeah, flashbacks from since we've met the characters as opposed to Don's childhood. You exactly. Know. With Peggy, we, we kind of fill in that, I mean, not all 14 months, but at least the story of the 14 months was she had the baby. She psychologically was shut down, did not want to, acknowledge the baby, let alone bond or spend any time. Baby was given away. But more importantly, how she recovered her her mojo, so to speak, her 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 enthusiasm for life and work came from a visit from Don. And in a really beautiful I've come to see this as a really beautiful scene. I used yes. to think this was just weird. Spooky, scary, weird. Yeah. Almost almost um like intense to the point of creepy with Don saying what he says, move forward. This never happened. It will, as they say, shock you how much this never happened. And I see it now in the way that without being spoilery, you know, there's other intense one-on-one conversations between Don and Peggy that we will see this possibly being one of the first it's But I, but now I put this in that continuum of it's a very deep love for Peggy 
that he is sharing. Absolutely, because even the reason that he says he's there is just love-based. That's right. It, concern. It, it, there's no reason. There isn't, it wasn't, it wasn't Peggy needed a, it wasn't Peggy needed a ride home from the hospital. Mm -mm. He was like, where the fuck did she go? Yeah, we well, got a promotion, a promotion and never showed up to work. You got a promotion. Your Christmas present is sitting on your desk. Where did Peggy go? I called a roommate. I called your mother. Right. She said you're in quarantine. How was that to hear that? I know, word? exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was purely an affectionate, caring, concerned right. move. And, and that gets, I mean, we're talking about it because it, it doesn't yeah, get he, talked he, about. No, he did go there out of love, but he also went there with a message. He didn't go there the way I would have gone there, being like, Peggy, how are you doing? <laughs> you gonna be well, okay? he went there with a message, well, but he didn't. Better soon. But he didn't Don know what went the message. There, but Don there, Don went there to rescue her emotionally. He yes. knew what he he didn't just he he. I think he knew. This is just me interpreting, but he knew what he was walking into when he began to see what this was all about, and he said, "Okay, she's this is she's on the precipice. She's on the edge." She can recover from this or she cannot recover from this. I need her to recover from this. I'm going to save save the day, so to speak, but actually in a more um, loving and thoughtful and caring way. There really is a world. Peggy. Oh, that just really moved me. Peggy, when you said Don needs her, because first I thought, yeah, he needs a good copywriter, but that's not what, that's not at all what you're talking about. Mm -mm. It's something about what Peggy represents to him. That's right. Is, I don't even know. It's the possibility of, of, of an earnest. I mean, that was the word they used for about her in the first season, right? Mm -hmm. Her earnestness. <laughs> they sort of right. made fun of her earnestness, but her earnest desire to be a good person as was expressed in that in that scene to to do good work just for the sake of the work to there it is in the pilot you know i always try to be honest yeah. you know all these qualities about peggy and peggy is flawed yeah and 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 can be terrible there are there are zillions and zillions and zillions of stories of uh, well, both ways. The, the story we usually hear is I got pregnant, had a baby, and my career went away, right? But from that era, especially. But under the surface, there are probably, maybe not equally, but still zillions and zillions, maybe, maybe a few zillion fewer stories of, you know, I was raised by my aunt. I thought it was That's my right. mom. I was yeah, raised I by. Just found, yeah, I just found out that my mother is my grandmother, my grandmother is my aunt, and my sister is my mom, and my I don't all know. The, what all I'm because about, yeah. the origin of the pregnancy and the baby that came from it could not be. It was not acceptable to just be like knocked up, keep going, raise your kid, keep your job, do it all. You know, not that that's easy now, but there's the stigma around it is is virtually gone. Back then, you couldn't live in the town you were living in if that happened. This is this is Don recognizing, yeah, this 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 could put this could 86 this woman's entire career and my experience with her. And I'm not going to let that happen. I need yeah. to go to that hospital and pull her out of the abyss that she's staring into. Yeah. So and Hobo says run. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> well, look, it's easier for the hobo when it's not the hobo's baby. Um, <laughs> right? Oh, well, this is hobo, someone. Well, this please, is someone do you think that hobo hasn't left babies behind? I mean, is, the hobo did leave yeah, a wife and kids behind, and that's what that's right. he needs Peggy to do. That's so right. that scene is 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 really um, is really powerful, but it exists within this within this time that Peggy does. And again, that's I think that's the link between her little tutelage with Bobby Barrett and the 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 care and love that unexpected care and love that she got from Don. I think mm-hmm. that's why she's re- recalling all of this in the same time period. Well, it's Bobby keeps saying like are you in love with him? Like what who is he to you? Yeah. Are you his secretary? Are you his lover? Yeah. No, he's are the you... guy that pulled me out of the abyss when I was he's kind of it. a father figure. He's kind of the dad I don't get to have. He's and he's a like so many of the dads in life. He's a prick to her. Yeah, I mean he's right. he's he is just such an right. asshole to now, her. There's that there's... scene. There's that scene. This is what I love about this show. There's that scene when Don first goes back to work and he's a prick to her. Exactly. And he, he nails her to the wall in front of the rest of the team. But what's, what's so great about it is I think it's the only scene where they're talking about work and it's creative. And, you know, I have my creative, I have my artwork. I don't have my artwork. No client is mentioned. We don't even know who they're talking about. Go back (laughs) and look at that scene. It's not about, Uts, it's not about right. I think, American it, I think Airlines. She's only, I think she's full-time Clarisol for now. I think Possibly, I think, but that Clarisol is not mentioned. It's just... Yeah, no, no you're right. The you're whole right. point it's, of the scene the, was, to show, was to show Don not taking it easy on Betty. Like, yeah, on no, Betty, you're right. On Peggy. Uh, Peggy. It was a, a totally contived for that purpose. It was great. There's no reason for the scene other than yes, it wasn't advancing was anything else but, yeah, was but great. that. No, you're right. Good call. So let's take one more break and come back and do some quotes, Dan. Let's quote it up. And we're back with quotes. What's your quote? You go first. What's what's my quote, Roberta? Okay. So going back to that scene, that exact scene we were just talking about, which is after the, uh, the team of no client leaves and it's just Peggy and Don and Peggy asks Don for the money (laughs) or reminds Mm -hmm. him. And Don says, I guess when you try to forget something, you have to forget everything. Yeah. And I, you know, there's a lot in this episode (laughs) and there's a lot in thematically everywhere about, you know, it's forget, you know, think about it deeply and forget it. There's a lot of putting things behind you. It's a big theme. And what, you know, and even just to what we were just discussing, I mean, one of the things that Don forgot when he put put it behind him, the baby thing is is sometimes he forgets that affection. Mm-hmm. He's not, he does not, you know, again, Don doesn't want to feel, right? right? That's the whole thing. Don too is busy deeply moving forward. Yeah. Too busy moving forward. He does not look backwards. He he and so but it refers he, to everything in his life. It refers everything. to his upbringing. It refers to Adam. It refers to that's right. Bobby, a couple nights ago, it refer, like just just constantly forgetting of everything in the course of this philosophy. I've I've said it. I'm, I'm going to always go back to it. That kind of the two things about Don Draper to remember is one, the hobo, and two, Adam killed himself. Mm-hmm. And Don, who is pretending not to have feelings, 
is being eaten up by the the impact that his choices have had on people. He saw it on Rachel's face. Mm-hmm. He can barely look at his wife and kids. Yeah. And you know, so it, that's what we're going to continue to explore. I Amazing. guess when you try to forget something, you have to forget everything. How's that going for you, John? <laughs> like the money you owe to get out of here. Yeah. What do you got, Dan? Uh, you know, um, this line literally leveled me. Peggy's in the hospital. She's virtually catatonic. And uh, the mother, Catherine Olson, they, uh, the doctor comes, I guess, and wants to talk to Peggy alone. And uh, Peggy's mom says, I'm going, but I'm not leaving, Peaches. And I just like, you know, Peggy, we're literally watching a human being at her lowest point. There's no, there's no, nothing even close. And uh, when you consider the um, relationship that Peggy and her sister Anita must have with that mother, the dad dying, Peggy's a young girl, you know, mothers play this role of just, of, it's kind of a, um, it's overused, but unconditional love. But we don't always experience it. We don't always um, see examples of it, of someone being tender to you when they have a right not to be. Mm-hmm. And we'd see Catherine Olson as this, you know, kind of browbeating, <laughs> um, domine- domineering woman. Well, I don't think we've ever questioned whether she loves her daughters, but her reaction to Peggy having sex, getting pregnant, not being, not using protection. Who was this guy? How did it happen? How did we not know? Are you kidding? Like, and this probably happened like within, you know, the past 36 hours. And inside of, of, of what they would have called a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Where Peggy's mom could have disowned her, could have not shown up, could have, come to the hospital hospital to yell at like you just don't know what that reaction from a Catherine Olson is going to be if you're Peggy you're scared out of your mind even before you say what's my mom going to say that line man that that just tell that that was incredibly I don't even know what the word is just just there's no words for the, the the emotion that I feel when she delivers that line because of the expression of unconditional love. So anyway, that's it for me. I'm going, but I'm not leaving peaches. Love it. All right. We let's wrap it up. We knew girl. It was uh, this uh, uh, one more. Thanks to Melinda McGraw, who was just such a wonderful Thank guest you. conversationalist and delightful human being. And next week we will be back to talk about maiden form Oh, what an episode. What an episode. Ask yourself now, are you a Jackie or a Marilyn? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 
If you're enjoying our show, please give us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts and share the show on social media. And if you're able to support us, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash they coined it. We've got some extra content there for you. We love hearing from our listeners. You can send your thoughts or questions to questions at tcimadmenpod.com or check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at tcimadmenpod. We're just at the beginning. We can't wait to discuss more Mad Men with you and continue bringing in special guests. Thank you so much, and we'll see you on the next episode.